Hello and welcome to Connect FCS Ed, where we talk about family and consumer science education. This podcast is geared towards recruiting, maintaining, and supporting all FCS educators. I am your host, Barbara Scully, and I am here to help boldly celebrate with you families and careers. Hi, and welcome to the Connect FCS Ed podcast. I'm thrilled to have you listening, but always so grateful to have you joining me today. Today's episode, I have a powerhouse of a guest who is making it his mission to revolutionize the way people treat one another. He is an author, speaker, advocate of kindness, which is my personal favorite because that's Mm -hmm. my philosophy, and he is co-founder to Character Strong. If you've not heard of that, That is an educational resource to help improve school safety and culture by implementing social and emotional learning. So, welcome, Mr. Houston Craft. Thanks, Barbara. Always fun to be introduced. You just never know what people are going to say about you, but that was mostly kind stuff. Thank you. (laughs) I only do kindness. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. I'm super excited to be here. Well, thank you. Now, so before we get into today's uh, topic, I wanted to share with you some similarities that we have. Oh, so, I like it. I know. We both grew up in the same area. Really? You, yeah. You grew up in the Snohomish area, but you had a short stint living in Issaquah. Dude. I grew up in Issaquah, Washington. So, no way. Yeah. That's so, super fun. I grew up from across the street from the salmon hatchery. Yes. So you know my it. birthday is actually, <laughs> it falls always on... Issaquah Salmon Days. And yeah. when I was a little girl, probably about five or six, my family, they took me in and they told me, <laughs> it's a fun little story. They told me that, hey, Barb, this is this is your birthday party. <laughs> this is your parade. And I, no joke, I guess I went around saying, thank you so much for coming to my birthday to so many strangers. <laughs> from- <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> So yes, I have very strong ties to Issaquah and yeah. my dad still lives there. So Oh, so fun. Yeah, it's a niche audience member that would know what salmon days are, but it was, you know, one of those like local festivals. Yes. That I don't think was actually Barbara's birthday party, but if it was Barbara, thank you for throwing it every year. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and um oh gosh. Yeah. So now my brother, he actually lives up in the Snohomish Arlington area now. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah, just kind of one of those small worlds. And yeah, I love to say that I know how to pronounce Puyallup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's our where our where character strong is based. Like that's our, our mailing address. And people are always fumbling around that one. So we're we're locals. I appreciate yep. that. Yeah. It's always kind of fun to see like similarities in that way. Yeah. So, <laughs> no, so in today's topic, I wanted to just, gosh, so I'm passionate about helping educators. And this podcast was, you know, birthed out of the fact that there's not a whole lot of resources for family and consumer science educators. We, and I like to say, we were the proponents of social and emotional learning. We started talking about that and having it Hmm. part of all of our classes in the home economics realm years ago. So we love focusing on the whole child and nurturing all of those 
wonderful attributes that Character Strong is focusing on. So, mm-hmm. but today I would love to share what strategies teachers or you can give teachers to optimize student engagement when we, me, myself included, as <laughs> teachers, we're so zoomed out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel you on that, which is uh, precisely the need for social emotional learning, right? Like we think about uh, our reframe at Character Strong is always that social emotional learning is not another thing on the plate, it is the plate upon which we build everything. So if we get that piece right, it strengthens the rest of the work that we do. And especially when it comes to whether it's in-person or or virtual learning, how do we build those relationships in a way that feels practical, low burden? And and, and how do we know that there's like an impact on the far side? If we're going to invest our time or energy into anything, we better know why we're doing it or else it will feel like another thing on the plate or a burden. Something feels like a burden to me. Very rarely do I do it well or enthusiastically or with fidelity if we're talking about program implementation. So there's a couple pieces to that. The first one is, is okay, let's think practical. What could we do in the virtual setting to create that sense of engagement? And our recommendation is that no matter what you're teaching, the first five minutes of class, especially in an online world, should be strictly community building. That we, the first thing we do as students come into our virtual classroom, you can change your virtual background and a lot of different online learning platforms. So we like to change our background to a picture of a classroom door to create some sense of like nostalgia. You can even mix it up if you have some photos from the school, if you're able to go take some photos of the school, maybe you have a different background every time that is school related. I think students like that sense of nostalgia, sense of place when we're so out of place, that can be a meaningful thing. I always have music playing whenever people come into a virtual room and I try to say as many names as possible. I try to comment on backgrounds if cameras are on. Believe deeply that cameras don't need to be on to create a sense of engagement. So using all the dimensions, and I think a lot about dimensions in online learning is the chat box is one level of engagement. But as soon as you get video on, you have a lot of different new opportunities to play with. You can do things where people get closer or farther away from the camera to show how well they understand something. You can do camera on, camera off to show people have things in common or people who are on one side or another side of an issue. You can use virtual backgrounds with students that have different colors or categories and they can physically move on their screen to show how comfortable they are with material or how well they understand something. And then of course the chat box itself naming yourself so that as people come into the chat box, we believe in an opt-in model so people can opt into their learning. So if I'm ready to learn that day, I put an exclamation point in front of my name. If I have questions, I can change my name to have a question mark. We can do temperature checks or or check-ins on the emotional side. Maybe you have a menu of feelings that you showcase to students and they can choose what they are feeling that day and put it in front of their name. So we have immediate emotional snapshot as the educator and other people in the class can see, oh, I'm not the only one feeling frustrated or anxious or overwhelmed today. So lots of ways we believe like in that integration is key. And part two would be the consistency part is key. It can't be something we do randomly or reactionarily, right? When something's going wrong, but what do we do to build it into the fabric of what we do so that students show up and expect that that first five minutes is going to be relational there's activities, there's games, there's connection, there's storytelling, there's the humanizing aspect of education before we get into anything content related. So that's the sort of practical 
piece that we believe in a lot. And I think the philosophical piece, the why piece, especially as we come into this unique timing, is that one of the things that we know and what researchers are predicting is that there's just going to continue to be an increase in social isolation, which existed pre-pandemic, only going to increase during the pandemic. And social isolation is going to be historically a key indicator of suicidal ideation, disconnectedness, loneliness, all those things that we know we don't want for our students and we can't ignore. The stakes are too high for us to ignore that. So for me, the reason I feel passionate about equipping people with these tools, role modeling these tools, is if we don't make time to get skilled at this and weave it into the fabric of what we do, if we don't decide that this is our priority, well beyond the academic gains or whether or not we're caught up, we can't concern ourselves with those things until we've been really clear on what matters most, which is like the stakes are too high not to prioritize this content. So for me personally, anything that I do persistently, I have a very clear purpose on why I do it. And so if I can get clear on that why for myself as an educator, then I'm going to show up with much more consistency, much more uh, stability, which we know from a trauma-informed lens, one of the critical things we can do for our students is just create consistent routines and habits and a sense of stability in our classroom, whether it's in person or virtually. So purpose fuels persistence, purpose fuels discipline, and let's make time for that, which is most important. No, you're absolutely right. No, that's something going for my school district going into a virtual setting. We're all scrambling trying to figure out, you know, how to do the synchronous learning and do the asynchronous learning. So there's so much at play right now that nobody really knows how it's going to work until we start the process. And we're going to be building this plane as we're flying it. No. Absolutely. I don't even know if we know if we're building a plane. Yeah, right. <laughs> I know. The goal is that it's a plane. <laughs> yeah. But tomorrow they'll be like, by the way, we're building a helicopter. You know that, right? Yeah, right. right. I know. No. So for me, I work in a building with 3,000 students and educators combined. How can we foster, how can I help foster staff morale when it comes to this? and or maintain that morale. Do you have any any suggestions? Yeah, well, I, I think from my lens, I have been fueled by creativity and passion over these past few months because in many ways as a reflection or a result of need, the deeper the need, uh, the more purposeful the work. And so I, I think on a high level as, as educators, I think we can feel pretty darn good that we have some very purposeful work right now. And that can drive a lot of motivation. That said, it's not the only thing, right? We can't do it alone. One of my favorite studies, they took someone and they had them stand at the bottom of a hill and describe that hill uh, as they saw it. Pretty steep hill and uh, the people would describe it as such. And then they brought someone in to stand next to them so that they were looking at the hill together. And the way that they described the physical shape of that hill was less steep, which I love the premise. The physical way that I see the world is determined by how much support I feel like I have. That's the premise of the whole study. Believing that I have someone standing next to me when I tackle big things, hard challenges, 
increases the feeling that I can actually accomplish this thing. So part two then would be, how do we acknowledge that we're doing this work together, even when we're sometimes apart? And so are we creating systems? Are we creating PD that feels meaningful and connective? Are we trying to pile a bunch of technical things on or are we making time for that community building component that's so important with our students, but also for adults? One of my favorite practical exercises would be a, a give-take survey, where as a staff, you everyone's required, loosely required, to write one thing that they can give right now and one thing they need to take right now. So it's a framework that allows people to ask for help by also sharing, here's one way I can support. So someone might say, you know, I'm really good at technical stuff and I can help with people who want to figure out virtual backgrounds or I can help with uploading something or editing a video. And what I need help with is I, I feel burnt out. I have three kids at home and I might just need a healthy recipe every once in a while. But like, it could be as simple as that. And giving examples like that helps inform how to actually do this well as a staff. But then everyone submits that survey and someone on the far end, administrator, counselor, whoever's role it is to think about this right now, gets that inbound data, puts it into a spreadsheet. And then if there are the ability to sometimes draw lines right away, right? Like, oh, this person can give this and this person needs this. Cool. Let's match them up. Or you might have a survey and you get public access to it from educators and you might go through the needs and say, hey, I can help that. I can help with that. And how cool would it be if through your network of educators or even beyond families, communities, tap into that to make sure every need on that list got met. So it gives a structure to allow us to ask for help, which we typically have a hard time as educators and passionate people. But it also gives an opportunity to celebrate the ways that we can be supportive that might be even unique to us or our passions or our gifts. So in terms of being able to tackle this hill together to make it look a little bit less steep, sometimes it's as simple as building the systems that allow that information to come forward. I really love, I love that, but I kind of have to steer towards the the survey when there's been so many surveys <laughs> we have gotten over the summer and yeah, and we're going, we're start those, those surveys are starting to come back to at us again. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah. you know, <laughs> another survey in the inbox, you know, so, yeah. but that, that, those are wonderful strategies. And I really like how even just showing like, oh, filling that out and seeing that immediate need on how somebody, you know, can step up and say, oh, I am good at this and I can, I can take care of that. Because just like you were saying, you know, it's creating that culture. And because I know for my building, at least, and a couple of other friends in their buildings, we need to, you know, really establish that community and that culture of kindness in our, in our buildings. Yeah. yeah. If you're feeling survey fatigue, find another way to, to create that. Maybe it's in a staff meeting. You're doing it virtually. It doesn't have to be everyone. Maybe it's you ask for five people to give share their give and their take, mm-hmm. right, it, with the group. And then you can create a system in the chat where people can start to inform that stuff. And it doesn't have to be the give-take survey, right? There's other ways to create that sense of connection. And, and maybe the survey comes later in the year as a means of support. But I, I think let's, to your point, if you are feeling deluged by some sort of specific vehicle, how do we get creative in finding a new way in? There's always another way to deliver the same stuff. Always, you know, (laughs) when the door closes, find a window. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. 
So how could you convince, you know, have that buy-in with people that if we want our students to have strong sell skills that our staff must understand and foster those skills as a staff first? Did I say that correctly? <laughs> yeah, uh, if I'm hearing it correctly, there's a couple pieces to that question, which is one, do we have a common language around why this work is important? And two, what are we doing to role model it as adults? Because I think that's key. <laughs> the first answer to that question, I mean, there's so much research and so much I could say on the topic. I would say that if a few of the heavy hitters, my favorite sort of conversations to engage people with would be number one, the conversation about empathy, which I think we could collectively agree we are in, we have a shortage of. And the statistics, the statistics would back that up that since the year 2000, we've seen a 40, 40 percent drop in empathy in college-age students. Not a very long time horizon, substantial drop. Uh, why is that? Well, Dr. Michelle Borba, a few decades researching empathy, wrote an amazing book called Unselfie. She describes it as the empathy gap. And she says, we all want empathy, sort of in many ways, common sense to want this more of in ourselves and the students we serve. So what creates the gap? Well, she says the three biggest barriers to empathy are anxiety, fear, and narcissism. She would say all three of those things are increasing. Right. Narcissism increasing in our young people, not by fault of their own, but the culture around them that tells them it's all about you. Fear increasing in a world where the media thrives on it and we're in circumstances that feel scary. And anxiety increasing for a combination of those things. And the byproduct is decreased empathy. Makes sense. The more worried I am about what's going on in my life, my world, the harder time I have thinking about what's going on in yours. So why teach social emotional learning? Well, social emotional learning are, are the skills that allow us to access empathy in meaningful ways. And not just access empathy, because the research would also suggest empathy on its own doesn't actually move the behavioral needle forward. I can feel bad for someone and do nothing to alleviate that pain. So the real work of a sort of, in our opinion, what we do at Character Strong, our goal isn't just to teach empathy for the sake of teaching empathy. Our goal is to teach a whole concert of skills that allow us to drive compassionate action, right? The, the highest level of the work that we do at Character Strong is to create a more loving world. How do you do that? Well, you teach the skills that allow us to love ourselves and other people better, right? Oh, so, and, and also, you have to actively show that as well. It's being, oh, yeah. It's, oh, it's yeah. not a passive thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you you want to, you've got to talk it. You also have to walk it. So Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of you know, social emotional learning programs will just teach the, this the sort of skills without the without the intention of the application. Right? Like we can teach emotional awareness, for example, but just being aware of our emotions or other people's emotions doesn't necessarily guarantee kind action. So we have to be able to teach young people to, to translate empathy into compassion, empathy into kindness, empathy into respect. So why teach social emotional learning? Well, we can't just say at this school, we do respect. That doesn't work. You can tell people we do a thing, but it doesn't guarantee they have the behavioral competencies to actually execute on that thing. You know, one of my favorite quotes by Dr. Ross Green, he says, kids do well when they can. And I would expand that to people do well when they can, right? And he says the only reason why we don't necessarily behave in the way that we would hope for it, at a place like school, is because of unsolved problems or lagging skills. So trauma or hurt or challenges going on in my life, or 
I don't have the competencies necessary to behave in the way you're asking me to right now. That's true for young people. That's true for adults. And we can't just get a really good mission statement. We can't just have a really strong acronym and expect the behaviors to follow simply because we've created the expectation. Right? Expectations have to be supported by explicit instruction. Exactly. And it has to be integrated into everything that we do. It can't just be a one-off thing. It can't be a secondary thing. We can't just say, hey, we're doing this program. And so we should see the needle move. No, it's a cultural shift. And that culture shift starts with adults. Absolutely. It starts with adults role modeling those behaviors and having systems to be held accountable to their own behavior change, to their own character development, which is why we do these things called staff character dares, admin character dares, family character dares, where we give practical low burden opportunities for people to put these things into action. And it's not required, but we just give enough weekly practices with the idea being if someone invites me to the gym enough times in a given week and gives me a specific workout to do that feels manageable, you know, one of these weeks I might just do it, maybe even two. And if I start to see the results, maybe I'll do it three or four. I like that. I like that so much. So last year, I, <laughs> I kind of deemed myself like a ambassador of culture, um, where I just started creating um, little, little one-note wonders and putting it into my staff inboxes and just saying, I think you're doing awesome and, and pointing out things that I was noticing. And a lot of it, I was, you know, a, a lot of the people that I was putting these notes in were people that I knew. But then I, I then started to see a little bit of a shift, you know, in the needle where all of a sudden, because I would put a couple of extra of these little one notes in the boxes, then all of a sudden I'd start seeing a few more of these one notes go into other people's boxes that I didn't know. So I being in a building with over 200 staff members, I'm sorry, I don't know everybody. I'm trying my best to figure it out. I'm going into my third year in this building, but <laughs> but it was one of those things I, I take pride in going, yay, I was seeing that needle move just a little bit. And then all of a sudden COVID hit. <laughs> yeah, but the philosophy holds that what you're attempting to do there, which is rooted in my high school leadership teacher's wisdom, we had a whole acronym for leadership. The S stood for selfless service. And the definition, which we were quizzed on, was creating opportunities for other people to be involved. And I think about that all the time, that the real function of leadership isn't just doing the kind act, it's creating and inviting people to join you in the kind act. And so the fact that you were creating that for others in a physical way is beautiful and certainly no different than what we could do now in a virtual setting. Yeah, no, I'm I'm now learning new ways and trying to figure out how to how to do this at a, a in a you know at the from a distance, but I'm gonna need to have new strategies. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I mean, new problems call for new strategies, and typically those new strategies will inform and remind us that maybe the old way of doing things wasn't even the best in the first place. Oh, I like that. Very wise. <laughs> <laughs> I'll so, take it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So how can we establish these cell goals as just as important to academic goals? So, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how do we, how do we deem anything important in our life, in our schools? Mm -hmm. Dr. Clayton Cook 
in a great line. He says, you show me your schedule and your budget, and I'll tell you what you think is important. Pretty much as simple as that. What we allocate our resources, our energy, and our time to is what we've decided is important. Mm -hmm. And people might say they believe in doing a thing, but I can believe in doing a thing and have no tangible actions or changing of priorities to make that thing actually important. Right, time in particular, of course, is our most precious and sort of finite resource, especially in schools. So are we making time explicitly in the schedule for instruction around social emotional learning for character? Are we protecting time to help staff develop their own and to practice some of these things so the implementation is done with fidelity and thoughtfulness and enthusiasm and competence? And are we allocating the right resources to it? Are we making room in the budget to support whether it's programs or professional development that strengthens our work around these things. I think that, well, I suppose my example is my most frustrating piece of research that I know about, which comes from Harvard's Making Caring Common Project. Dr. Richard Weisbord was the one that led this up and he asked families to rank in order what they thought was most important to have their kid be a high performing, happy or kind. And about 80 something percent said they would rather their kids be happy or kind over high performing. That sounds nice, right? That we, I think most of us would say, yeah, we want our young people to be good mm-hmm. and happy and joyful and that high performing is important, but it's not the most important. It's interesting as they ask the kids the same question. What do you think your parents or your family want you to be high performing, happy or kind? And the data was the exact opposite. The way they frame it in the research is they call it the rhetoric reality gap where what we say is important and what we actually allocate our resources to, what we make important with our time, energy, those things can sometimes be very different. And in that delta, we find culture, the culture that we get that might frustrate us, the lack of sort of behavioral competencies or the sort of culture that we want in our students or our staff. And it's because we can say we want a thing, but if we don't allocate the proper resources to it, we're not going to get it, which makes sense. That's the way anything else in our life works. But I think sometimes we think kindness should be a natural resource and it's not. It's mind and it's well cultivated. No. Wow. I'm just processing all of that going. That's so deep. And <laughs> you know, it, you're absolutely right when uh, so my favorite it, it's a it's an act of service for me, but when I give my time, that is yeah, you know, I could have something scheduled and then all of a sudden somebody could call me or text me or email me saying that they have a problem. I will immediately, I'll shift mm. because it's an immediate need. It's like, and I'm fulfilling, I'm fulfilling something for myself because I enjoy helping, but I want other people to see that time is, it's everything. It's, mm. yeah. And where I know there's other people who, you know, my, my, my mother-in-law in particular, she is so stringent when it comes to schedules. And mm-hmm. here I'm, I can kind of maneuver in and out of schedules. I, I can totally respect and I love a schedule, a good schedule. I love it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's that time piece when somebody in having that human interaction where all of a sudden you're going to be helping somebody, you know, there's something that completely takes, takes over for me where I just completely shift. Hmm. Such a good conversation about love languages and what people want Mm -hmm. versus what they need. 
what we feel most fluent in speaking because it's oftentimes the thing we crave most. And acts of service for me, oftentimes rated as one of my higher love languages, because I know that when someone gives me a moment of service, it frees up my time, which is so priceless to me. Right. That said, the, the converse can also be true that not everyone operates that way. And for some people, keeping their schedule is an exercise in kindness because it's self-care. May Brown would say the most compassionate people are the most boundaried. They're the ones who are actually the first to say no. They say no quite often because they know that if they say no to enough things, it makes their yeses that much more rich, that much more deep, that much more thoughtful. So yeah, perhaps both are right in that circumstance. Yeah, no, they both are. And that is something that I struggle with. <laughs> you know, with, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> with you know, yes, 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 in saying no. There was, you know, my daughter, she's now 14. She was di- at seven years old. She was diagnosed type one diabetic. And I remember just, I was on committees. I was in leadership positions and I had to decline everything and step down from my positions and say, I'm sorry, I have to take care of, I have to take care of my house. And that was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Not just, not because taking care of my, my kid, but saying, no, I can't manage both my positions, but, and taking care of my house well. And what was most important to me was making sure that my house was in order. Hmm. Now, now, I guess my last question would be, you know, compassion fatigue, you know, how can we as educators become more resilient? Yeah. That is, uh, don't we need fortitude right now for the long haul? I think it is truly, we come back to the matter of time and boundaries. If it's not on my schedule, it doesn't exist for many of us, especially when we feel overwhelmed. So I have in my schedule every day, blocked off time for reflection and connection. That's what I crave personally. Not everyone, what everyone craves. Some people might crave silence. Some people might crave a walk or exercise or movement or singing or reading, but putting it into your schedule makes it real in your schedule, which I think is a really big deal. And finding opportunities to do it with consistency is going to pay dividends in the ultimate ability for you to show that compassion, which is huge. That plus the research around my ability to do something well over time. Dr. Angela Duckworth wrote the book Grit. It's a bit of a hot topic word. And I think it's important to clarify the sort of grit that we're talking about in the context of this conversation, which is the way Angela Duckworth would define it would be the ability to persist at something challenging over time. And certainly the work that we're doing in education right now is going to be challenging over time. (laughs) And so she's interviewed thousands of people who have some level of resilience in different categories. And what she found was that the most common denominator across thousands of samples is that they had clear purpose. They knew exactly why they were, they were doing what they were doing. It wasn't goal-oriented. It was deeper than that. They figured out a way to attach it to purpose beyond, their, beyond the moment, beyond the emotion, beyond the, the sort of ephemeral feelings. Why am I doing this? And is it bigger than me? Which doesn't guarantee that in any given moment, it allows you to overcome that frustration or that pain or that exhaustion. But knowing that was fuel in the tank for so many that having a really clear purpose, articulating it often out loud, writing it down, having it somewhere you see is sometimes as maybe trite as it sounds. That's what the research says, that the people that were able to do hard, really hard things over very long periods of time, time horizons, 
they knew why they were doing it and they saw it often. They spoke it often. They shared it often. And that gave them the, the fuel in the tank they needed. Oh, I love that. Well, in speaking of fuel in the tank, I got a very exciting email in my educator inbox about something that you're very passionate about and that yeah. you just, <laughs> uh, you're releasing. What would you like to share? The good news? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, so excited. It's a, a book I've been working on. It's really the culmination of, you know, I've spoken in 600 schools about passion and kindness and empathy and Character Strong at this point is working with about 2,500 schools thinking about the same topics. And so uh, I'm a big advocate that I think kindness is the most essential ingredient to a world that, that needs a lot of that compassion. And I think the way we currently think about kindness in our world doesn't do it justice. I think the way we talk about it, the posters we have up in our schools, the expectations, the acronyms, while I don't think they're inherently bad, I actually don't think that they showcase how challenging kindness can be. And as a result, to the point of our conversation, we don't allocate the necessary resources to teach it. And if we think about something as simple, which sometimes we make kindness seem simple in quotes like, just be kind or (laughs) throw kindness around like confetti or at this school, we're kind. And if we oversimplify a thing, then we don't allocate the correct resources to it which is why I wrote the book (laughs) to justify uh, the type of kindness I think that the world needs, right? And you'll find at the end of every chapter, I say the kind of kindness the world needs is blank. Uh, And the title of the book is Deep Kindness, a revolutionary guide for the way we think, talk, and act in kindness. And it's uh, hyper-practical. We have educator guides so staff can do book studies. We have student guides so students can unpack it in the context of their school. It's great for virtual learning right now. So yeah, that's, that's the pitch. I'm super excited. Simon and Schuster decided to publish it. And we literally, as we're recording this, we launched it t- today and it comes out 922 officially. Well, I'm excited because I'm going to be going over to the Dean of Students for home later on this evening and I'm going to have a little powwow and I'm going to be rigging up your book and asking <laughs> if we can, you know, for our leadership committee, if mm. we can you know, order it and be a book study. Because I think you know, just like what you're saying, we need more of it. Unfortunately, kindness isn't taught and we need to be teaching it. But more importantly, we need to be showing kindness and yeah. grace during this time period. Mm. <laughs> Learning it and living it, both of it. Both. Exactly. No, I love it. And I, I'm really, I'm excited for you and this new adventure. And I read just kind of your, your blurb on it this morning and just saying, you know, how there was a lot of tears, you know, it, mm-hmm. throughout this project uh, for you. So, and I can, I can actually, I can empathize. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the humbling process, teaching, writing, a lot of the work in education will humble you. That's a good thing. No, it is. It truly is. Oh, I love it. No, this has been a fantastic conversation and I can't say thank you enough how grateful I am that you were able to join me and just kind of share, you know, simple strategies, but yet they're so effective and they're so needed. Yeah. They're essential, oh, yeah. as we would say. Low burden, high impact. That's the goal. That's what we need right now. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me today at Connect FCS Ed. In this podcast, we boldly celebrate families and careers by providing inspiration, support, and resources for teachers, students, and families. If you could do me a quick favor, please leave me a five-star review on iTunes. 
My mission is to get this out in front of as many people as possible to help educate and inform the community that home economics is alive and well. Each week, I will choose one special person to win some Connect FCS Ed swag. So be sure to add your name to the review, and I will reach out to you if you're the winner. Thanks again for spending your time with me today, and be sure to visit me at fcspodcast.com for past episodes and more gifts to help spread the word that family and consumer science is today's home economics.